On this episode of Data Driven, Frank and Andy interview Stephen Oren, the CTO of Intel Federal. Yes, Intel the computer chip company. Because if you want to train your AI models in a reasonable amount of time, you need better hardware. Well it turns out that Intel has developed new CPU instructions to accelerate AI workloads, FPGAs allow for faster development in custom applications with specific needs. Speaking of Intel, you have to check out an upcoming Intel and Red Hat webinar. Link in the show notes. Tell them Bailey sent you. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emergent fields of data science, data engineering, and of course, artificial intelligence. As with me, I always have Andy Leonard, my favorite, most favorite data engineer in the world. And um, and today we have a special guest, um, Steve Oren, who is the federal CTO of Intel. Yes, that's right, Intel, the chip company. And uh, although they do a lot more stuff now. Um, so welcome, welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you, and uh, glad to be here, Frank and Andy. Cool. So one of the things that I think people have not realized, people think that that AI is a is a software story, right, primarily. But quickly, once you get into it, everyone goes, goes gaga for things like ChatGPT or, well, no one's really gone gaga for BARD just yet. We're going to give that a few more, while, you know, a little, little more time for the paint to dry on that. Um, but... Um, Quickly, I think when people start becoming, you you know, builders of AI tools, the number one restriction, aside from kind of what your data engineering pipeline looks like, is how quick you can train these models. Uh, and obviously, I'm, I'm pretty sure Intel has a thing or two to say about about uh, hardware. Absolutely, and as you've as you've alluded to, um, AI and all the things that make up AI rely heavily on the infrastructure that you're training. You're inferencing, but even before you get to the fun stuff, you know, how do you do the data curation? How do you suck in the data, the ingestion, get the large multi-node data sets that these large language models are uh, are trained against? There's a lot of hardware and infrastructure that has to make that happen. Um, and then when you get to the, the important phase with how do you train those uh, in a timely fashion, hardware is the answer. And what we're seeing in a lot of these spaces, especially if we start looking at things like large language models and transformers, as well as looking at other uh, approaches uh, that are coming out, is that, that not only does the hardware matter, but the type of hardware matters. Um, uh, if you think about it, it's not a one size fits all. It's a heterogeneous architecture to make sure you have the right hardware for your workload. Uh, one great example, so you know, large language models and graph analytics requires not just heavy duty hardware, but the right memory architecture to keep those nodes in place while you're training. And what you find is that often doesn't uh, fit well into just a classic GPU only kind of mode, which is what the classic AIs leverage, the, just the sheer number of cores that you would have in a GPU. And so what we're seeing is optimizing the hardware for the kind of workload is the answer to getting timely training and especially when you start doing more of that sort of iterative and feedback training, it's not a one and done, it's an ongoing process. So you need that to be quick enough and powerful enough and robust enough to handle those workloads. And then the other side where hardware really starts to matter is on the inferencing. You wanna be able to ask the question and get a response fairly quickly, if not near real time. If you're in a car and it's autom autonomous driving, you want it real time. You wanna know that's a tree and not a shadow. Um, if you're talking about you know online and doing some fun stuff with ChatGPT, you still don't want to wait 20 minutes for your response. 
And so inferencing matters, training matters, and the kind of hardware and infrastructure that support it. And that's why Intel um, and our ecosystem are looking at providing a heterogeneous set of architecture. So our classic CPU, so the Xeon in the server and CPU on the client core, but also FPGA-based logic, you know, AI accelerators like our Habana chips in the cloud and uh, our uh, targeted sort of edge uh, AI chips like Movidius for video processing and the like. But then really besides the hardware, it's that software infrastructure layer. How do you optimize your code? Because most AI developers are not hardware experts, nor do I want them necessarily to be. So a lot of it is about building out those abstraction layers that optimize your code that's doing your, your, you know, your hugging face or whatever to take full advantage of the hardware underneath you without you having to know what hardware is underneath you so that you can provision your workload where it needs to go and not have to worry about the hardware infrastructure. And that's part of our overall strategy and working with the broader ecosystem, the open source community, the, uh, the, the commercial providers and the software frameworks to give them the tools to get the best performance out of their AI and their and their uh, data science. Right, and I think I think you hit the nail on the head. I think we're at an inflection point, not so much in engineering, right, but more in the perception, right? Because whenever you think, oh, you know, we have, um, you know, we we, we have a a large workload we got to do. Let let's throw some GPUs at it, right? And it's a little more nuanced than that. I think people are finding out that you know that you need more than just a bunch of GPU. Um, and, you know, I was on a call, and I want to get your thoughts on this, because he said something very similar to what you said. And and, and th this was kind of, you ever have these moments when you're on a call and somebody smart says something, you're like, I don't know about that, right? And it's just like, it's kind of like what, what they did in World War Z and where there was like the 10th man rule, where no matter how ridiculous it sounds at first, if, you know, you kind of want to investigate it. and 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 that's why I was glad when you know your your name popped up in the feed because I'm like, yeah, I want to talk to you about this because he was basically saying that, you know, um, that GPU um, usage is overrated and that where the real advantage is going to be is going to be in software acceleration and on CPU kind of optimization too, which is sounds a lot like what you said. And, and when I first heard that, my first thought was, I don't know about that. But this guy's plugged in. He's a big shot at Red Hat, right? He's plugged in. He knows a lot. And I was like, I didn't want to just dismiss that. Like, if my cousin said that, I'd be like, yeah, okay. But like, <laughs> if this guy says it, he may whether or not he's right may may yet to be determined. But the fact that he believes it means that there's a there's a trail there to follow. So I've been kind of poking around at stuff, and 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 tell me about that. Like, what what is? It sounds like there's some weight behind that that opinion. So, thank you. You hit on you hit it on the head there. It's not that GPUs aren't important. It's just GPUs aren't the only and best solution for all aspects of AI. And that's there are certain vendors that want you know again for a variety of reasons want GPU to be the foundation for all of your AI activity. Like if you're a GPU based hardware company, exactly makes sense. <laughs> um, but when you look at when you actually go look at the benchmarks across multiple and here's the key thing across multiple AI types. So different uh, algorithmic models, as well as the flow. So there's different stages. So the inference the tra versus training, uh, ingestion and curation versus the training versus the feedback training. What you'll find is that GPUs will rock for certain things. And they are important for certain things, both you know, from that vendor as well as from a variety of other vendors. GPUs do play a key role. But when you look at the, the breadth of AI activities and the benchmarks associated, you actually find that a lot of really good work just happens on standard commercial off-the-shelf CPU. 
and actually most of the inferencing, I mean, we're talking in the 70, 80% of inferencing happens best on CPU and areas like large language model and graph analytic based approaches, the numbers are really show very clearly that it's not a, a core bound problem, it's a memory bound problem. Mm -hmm. And so having efficient in and out of memory, which is what you get from a, a CPU or an accelerator with uh, ample memory on board, is actually much more powerful for training those types of data sets because the GPU, you're dealing with that latency across the bus. Um, and that actually starts to matter when you're talking about billions or trillions of node graph analytics. Um, so I wouldn't say that, that GPUs are, are a dying breed. That is absolutely not the case. And there's going to be a huge market for GPUs or GPU-like functionality. I want to be careful about it because you can also, you don't have to have a discrete card. The reality is you can have GPU capabilities embedded in your processor, and we've already seen from Intel and from other architectures. The real uh, interesting thing is making sure that whatever your workload is can be optimized, like, like your friend said, optimized through software to that hardware. Yeah. So that if you are running a, uh, a large language model, that you're actually running it on the right hardware and that the hardware and your software know how to work together to give you the best performance. Um, if you're working on, and I'm seeing a lot of really cool things right now around graph-based approaches in the memory intensive side of that and the, the, right. the switching you know, back and forth between that, those latencies can, can really come to bear when you're talking about you know, cross-bus kind of communication. So having high amount of memory available directly to the CPU to be able to do those training, keep all that data in flight so you can train is going to be one of the key differentiators of how you can take those larger English models and apply them to more than just writing, you know, cool essays by Shakespeare. Uh, <laughs> I think what we're going to see is things like ChatGPT and those that whole category of transformer-based approaches applied to just about everything, not just chat, but you know, right. uh, prediction approaches to you know every, and it's really about getting it the training sets to become smart on those very very uh, vertical domains. That's going to be a resource-intensive process and it's not going to be throwing a bunch of GPUs or it's going to be a lot of cloud scaling and it's going to be a lot of memory intensive activities. And like your friend highlighted, the software is going to really matter that it's taking full advantage of the hardware to get you those performance report. Well, this reminds me a lot of just patterns I've seen over the decades of being in computing as a hobbyist and then a profession is you see a lot of things come into uh, the fore as being very monolithic. And then people realize, wait, that has to, that's really a team effort. And I think about it as a baseball team, right? You don't want to put the pitcher, the person who's skilled at pitching in center field, can they perform there? Well, gosh, yeah, but you're wasting them, right? They are, they are tuned, their mm -hmm. whole body, their, their desires, their motivations. They love being uh, pitchers. So put that person on the pitcher's mound. And and you see this happen, and it's in all sorts of places. We saw it, Frank and I have seen it over the years, when the unicorns were the big, big deal, the data science unicorns who could do data engineering and everything that we've kind of broken out now um, into other fields. Um, and, and we're seeing it now in, in, in the hardware and in the distribution of um, you know, it's the separation of concerns and the distribution of concerns, getting every component to do what it's best at. And along with that, and I'll shut up after this, is the this whole idea that it's moving so fast that the hardware that's going to perform the task so first sometimes isn't even identified yet because some new approach 
popped into the equation is somebody tested something and went, this is great. Now, where do I run it? And, you know, you just see that. And it's on a scale now where it used to be measured in years and moved to months. It's now weeks and sometimes days. It's just amazing how fast this is going. And not that long ago, people were predicting an AI winter, right? Like it yeah. was really kind of, I mean, I think Dolly kind of and, and, and the whole generative artwork stuff, mm -hmm. I think kind of like, wait a minute, there's something here. And then Dolly came out and then mm -hmm. OpenAI did the one-two punch of, you know, here's Dolly. A couple months later, here's ChatGPT. Now right. you're just seeing like it's on fire. Like it's not just yeah. an AI summer, it's an AI heat wave. Yeah, exactly. It is. It's it's a full El, El, El Nino. On, on yeah, the that's right. That's right. <laughs> I like that. That's the quotable for sure. Um, but but I mean, like what? Because I think one of the things I think people realized <laughs> is. And a lot of the thinking, a lot of the thinking was that, you know, that AI winter was coming because we're hitting processor uh, or hardware kind of upper yeah. barriers. And. I think we're finding out, I think much to what you said is that it's not just about, you know, throw this many GPUs at it. It's right. The entire story, the entire bus matters, right? So the shortstop matters, you know, using the baseball analogy, right? The outfielders, yeah. right? You can't, you can't really win a lot of baseball games if not everybody on the team is, um, is playing at their best. Absolutely. And, and just to take that metaphor all the way, you know, the, the turf matters too. The infrastructure that you're running those, mm -hmm. those specialists on you know, you're going to play better in different fields. That's true. That's, that's a good point. That that is. Uh, I love you took the metaphor to the next level. That's awesome. Um, so so you mentioned. Uh, I think you mentioned whether it was in the virtual green room or here, something called habanero. And I know you're not talking about you know just um, cooking, right? Spicy uh, habana, food. Yes. Habana. habana. I'm sorry. I had, <laughs> I had food on my mind as as is often. <laughs> Yeah. So what is Habana? Because I've heard I've heard whispers of it. I know we're recording this uh, uh, middle of May. Uh, there's going to be some announcements at the Red Hat Summit. Well, they'll probably already happen by the time this goes live. But but what is what is it? So Havana is an, uh, an architecture, an AI accelerator, uh, and it's a it's a specialty chip specifically designed for accelerating AI. And it's actually two chips. Um, and the reason it's two chips is that you want again going back to what we were talking about before, you want the right hardware for the AI workload. So you want to be able to have the right hardware to opt optimize for training flows and a separate set of hardware for, for cloud scale and hyperscale inferencing workloads. And so that's actually what Habana is. It's a, it's a two-chip strategy. So Habana Gaudi, which is out and available, uh, V2 is available, uh, V1 has been out for some time. It's available. If you go to the Amazon cloud, you can get it today. Uh, it's also available in data centers and a lot of universities have them in their high-performance computing environments. And it's geared to doing that sort of scale, large data set training that you would find, um, you know, in, in whether it be in a cloud kind of environment, a chat GPT level of, uh, of analytic, or in the case of high performance computing, you know, whether you're doing climate modeling or flow dynamics, those kind of big training model sets that you want to be able to do at scale. And what's nice about it is that it, like your cloud scale, it scales with your architecture. So it allows nice. you to be able to scale up your training based on the compute needs with an AI accelerator specifically tuned to that. The other chip, the, the Goya chip is an inferencing chip. So it's again, the uh, tuned for that inference 
But the reason you do, again, this is for high-end cloud scale, hyperscale, or things like high-speed training, where you want to be able to do large amount of inference, you know, in a near or close to real time as possible against really complex uh, uh, kind of, of data flows that you're trying to do the analysis of. And again, looking at the right hardware, we wanted to make sure to, to not just meet the, what we call the sort of the normal scale. So the kind of things where, you know, you would interact with, you know, when you're trying to do fraud detection, but you also want to be able to handle the really large scale inferencing because you're dealing with ingestion of multiple data sets across multiple different domains and having to be able to do that inferencing in a streaming kind of mode. And that's really where the Goya chip shines is an inferencing platform that again can scale with the cloud. And that's really the, the Habana strategy is about giving you the hyperscalers and high performance computing, the equivalent of an AI custom chip. And that's it really where Habana sits. And then when you look okay. at sort of the majority of what most people will leverage in a cloud or on-prem, that we what we've been doing there is adding uh, new instructions to the CPU. So VNNI was the first really big one in AVX 512 which really accelerates the math that you're doing behind inferencing and uh, and training and give you those instructions that software, whether it be Intel's OpenVINO software or um, you know TensorFlow or other frameworks can take advantage of that math to use hardware offload to accelerate the math that you're doing in your training and your inferencing workloads for most of your normal kind of AI, a lot of the AI we deal with, not the high performance computing style. Um, and so you get the balance. And again, it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, the right compute for the right AI. We've also yeah. introduced data center graphics because again, there are workloads that absolutely make sense for a GPU besides you know, fun gaming. Um, sure. And uh, that's really where you'll see GPU shine on those kind of specialty workloads that take full advantage. And a lot of the deep learning object recognition ones work well on GPUs. They actually work well on other kinds of platforms as well. And one of the things we're seeing in the edge is a shift towards more customized approaches, whether that be right. using an FPGA as sort of a hardware platform that you can code in your algorithms to do inline inferencing, do feedback loop training. And you see this a lot of times in the, you know, the image processing, video processing side, also in the signals processing. So whether it's 5G and being able to do signal quality testing or signal acquisition and being able to do you know, RF signal analysis, FPGAs actually really shine for that kind of workload where you want to put in your custom algorithm that you're going to actually uh, uh, test against or use as part of your conditioning. And then we get to the idea of what we call an, AC, you know, an ASIC. And that's where you know your workload, you know you're going to be doing this kind of inference. You can actually yeah. code that into a, a, a custom chip that will do just you know, sort of audio uh, uh, AI inferencing or do certain aspects of video coded. Um, and this way you get the most performance in a low swap. And that's that's the idea here is you want to be able to handle everything from the pointy end of the spear, the edge sensor, <laughs> and give it the ability to do AI as opposed to waiting for it to send the data to the cloud and get a decision. You want to be able to give it something, but it also has to operate at the, at the, the size, weight, and power that you'd expect from an edge sensor. You obviously yeah. don't have a data center power system for your, you know, for your car, for your drone, um, or for your camera on the streetlight. Right, right. right. That I, would be a I'm very curious. heavy to fly that drone. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, I'm, Andy, I'm curious you. about. That's okay. I'm curious how uh, you kind of manage what I'm. I'm just going to make up words here, but like an an innovation chain. I'm thinking about like supply chain management, and you, I know um, I've I've got um, experience in electronics engineering. And I know some of how much it takes to go into, mind you, my work was decades old. But this whole idea of getting ahead of the curve, 
or at least being able to predict where the curve's going and how steep and when. I mean, that sounds like a huge challenge for uh, figuring out what will be needed next. So you, what you're talking about is how do you, how does a company that's building out the, both the hardware and the infrastructure stay ahead yeah. of the, you know, this, like you said, the week to week turnaround in the AI world? Yeah. Uh, part of that is having a diverse team of, of, of specialists. So AI, the yeah. Intel Labs, which is our team that looks five to 10 years out, is over a thousand people who full-time looking at, you know, process node technology, security, AI, data science, they're across multiple domains. And within each domain, we have specialists in different areas. Okay. Um, one of the really, I'll give you a great example. Before ChatGPT blew up, I had two different uh, of my AI specialists, uh, one on the government side and one on the performance side, start talking to me about this thing called, you know, a transformer. Like, oh, there's this really cool thing that, that we're seeing here. It's called a transformer. And I'm yeah. like, okay, that's interesting. And tell me more. And they explain sort of how it worked. And then, you know, fast forward six months later, ChatGPT shows up and I'm like, ah, I know what that is because that has the word transformer. I've seen this. And again, it's about having, giving your people the ability to go out and, and look. I think one of the advantages of being at Intel, um, and it's really why I've been here so long, is, you know, it's, it, you take, you know, the, everyone knows Intel inside, but there's something to that. Our chips are inside the edge clients, are inside the financial services, healthcare, manufacturing, oil and gas, are in the government system, they're in the cloud, we're in the network, which means yeah. we see workloads, both current and coming, from all those different domains. So okay. in some respects, we're on the cutting edge because we're seeing what people do, because they come to us and say, hey, I've got this software, I want to optimize on your hardware. What does it right. do? Well, it does blah, 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 blah. I'm like, Okay, let's help you. And then eventually that becomes open AI, open, you know, open AI. I mean, that's the kind of thing because ultimately every startup, every big company wants to get the most out of their software and sure. our teams. And one of the things people don't realize is Intel has over 19,000 software engineers and a large majority of those do, you know, they really divide up into three areas, sort of research and pathfinding, ecosystem enabling, and then software development, you know, for hmm. you know, like compilers, software services, software tools. That ecosystem enabling team is a very robust team. It's been around for a very long time, whose job is to make Microsoft Windows rock on Intel, make Oracle rock on Intel, make Red Hat rock on Intel, make open source. We have over a thousand open source software developers whose full-time job is committing to open source. We're actually one of the largest committers to open source community. And wow. a lot of what they do is build the optimized version of those you know, Linux kernel libraries or to that uh, that AI model running on Intel and give it away and open source it. We've created whole model zoos optimized for the variety of Intel architecture because we know if you if you can run it best on Intel, you will run it and that consumes resources. We like that. But ultimately, <laughs> it gives us those. So we have those, you know, they call them bell cows, if you will. We're seeing those bell cows of what's coming next because they come to us and they say, hey, help us. And very few see us as competition because we're not going to go build the chat GPT. We're not going to build a new operating system or a new, you know, sort of predictive maintenance solution. We're right. going to give you the ar the architecture for you to run it best. And even our OEM, you know, we, we whether you buy from Dell or HP or from Lenovo, we don't care. You're buying Intel hardware inside. And so let's help you take the best advantage of those platforms. And that's really been the approach from Intel is we want everyone's uh, software to work. And even with you know the GPU vendors, they still run on a CPU platform. And so we want to make sure that that code runs best so that they you again, you're driving the overall consumption. We raise the bar for everybody, we raise the bar for everybody. Nice. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there, right? And I think one of the things you brought out, which is something that people don't, I don't think people have widely 
realized yet that Edge is probably going to be the next frontier in um, in just computing, right? Obviously, the last 10 years have all been about cloud, right? But I think we're swifting as, as companies kind of take a look at the bills and realize that lift and shift was not a financially great decision, right? <laughs> Whether or not cloud is a good thing or not, I think it's a, it, 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 it always goes back to those two words that every consultant and every IT person always says, it depends. Um, right. Uh, whereas, you know, you know, previously it was last 10 years was, oh, definitely was the other uh, two words. But I think now we're realizing it, it depends. And I think one of the one of the drivers for this are things like autonomous systems, right? Or drones, right? Or self-driving cars, right? No matter how good 5G is, and I can tell you, I know all the dead spots <laughs> in the in the DC area. Um, but, um, you know, if you're driving along at 60 miles an hour, uh, 100 miles, 100 kilometers per hour for our friends overseas, um, and and you're you want to like you said like is that a tree is that a shadow is that a person is that a grandma right you don't want to wait on the latency to come back you want the inference or the decision to be made on device so right. you're really bumping up against the speed of light and you're talking nanoseconds not milliseconds yeah. right um, what 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 do you see because you mentioned like you know you want you want there to be sensors but obviously these things have to be relatively low power. I guess in a car it doesn't matter as much, but certainly on a drone, um, that matters. Um, what, what, what sorts of challenges does Intel see in that regard? Like, in terms of you want the most performance, but you want the most energy efficiency. Like that seems like two uh, opposing uh, forces. Yeah, you would think that way, but if you look at Moore's law and you look mm -hmm. at what's really behind that, is about reducing the the the, the size, and really that means the power. And increasing the performance, increasing the amount of you know transistors, and that's really been what's driving compute all along. Is how do we get to lower power per density? Um, mm. Now, where it becomes interesting is in the cloud. That's becomes a, it's a cost measure. It's about getting more for your dollar. In a car or in a drone or even in a factory floor, it's about being able to operate closer to the to the, where the decision needs to be made without having to, again, to have to power it and have that immense cost, or in the case of uh, a drone, the weight of the of the battery pack and so forth. Right. So lower swap actually enables those edge use cases. And again, one of the things that people uh, realize is that edge can mean different things to different people. You talk to the cloud providers and edge is just a, a couple of racks closer to, you know, out of the cloud on-prem. You look at Azure Stack or Snow, you know, Snowball or these kind of approaches, and it's really about pushing pieces of the cloud closer to the edge, to like the core, or the 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 the, the they called it the fog back in the day, and right. you look at the edge and you take a look. I'll take a look at a Tesla. It's like a driving data center. There's a you know there's compute capabilities in there. A plane yeah. is a flying data center. Your drones are getting to be more uh, you know computing. And when you move from a a log you know sort of discrete mode to a logical mode, and I've seen these already where you have a drone who actually has one processor but multiple containers. So it's actually running multiple mm. functions that could be you know, thought of as different applications on different nodes, but now they've all been collapsed with either virtualization or container. So you can have navigation being one, you can have be doing object detection and mapping with another, and then be able to do sort of other kinds of sensing, you know, like uh, temperature or uh, a parameter and things like that, and doing analysis in real time. I, one of the best examples uh, that we demonstrated um, at our last year's Fed Summit was a set of drones out mapping a region. You know, they were going about their business, but they had a policy 
that if somebody walked into a specific area of interest, you know, let's say in front of an embassy or in front of, and loitered too long, that one of the drones would be retasked and go go over and investigate and do op, you know facial recognition, all the things you'd want to do to make sure, hey, is this person uh, up to no good? And it didn't require a reprogramming of a drone. It didn't require a special drone that was just the investigator. It would basically retask itself with a new mission in real time and go investigate. And when the person left that zone, it'd go back to its day job of mapping the environment. And that's just the sort of the tip of that. It's like a simple prototype to show sure. that even a very small autonomous system, and these were, you know, like the sort of my, you know, many drones here, um, is capable of the compute necessary to do multi-mission kind of use cases. So the edge absolutely is that new new frontier. And it's it's again similar to the cloud. When you say cloud, you everyone thinks, oh, public cloud. Really, cloud is all those architectures all the way down to the edge. It's the way we develop those cloud native apps that can flow back and forth. So from a cloud provider, it's moving more of their cloud infrastructure closer to the edge. And what the edge folks, you know, whether it be the actual device or sensor manufacturers are looking at is bringing some of those cloud capabilities to their device to operate independently. And there's a reason for that is that number one, latency, like you mentioned, Frank, but also the time, you know, the, the cost of shipping all that data. No one wants to ship raw 4K video feeds to the cloud right, right. Um, just to be able to tell me, you know, is that a tree? You want to be able to send the, the, the results that I saw a tree here and with the, you know, the longitude and latitude, which is a small data packet, and let right. the sensor do the AI, do the inference at the edge. Right. And then, you know, you have that the case where you're talking about, you know, planes or, or or vehicles, right? Like, you know, the whole time it's tracking, did the wheel fall off? Did the wheel fall off? Did the wheel fall off? Right. <laughs> but at one point, when you get to your destination, you know, the wheel either fell off or it didn't. Right. So right. that becomes kind of, it, you collapse that entire thing of to one integer level of, or you know, really not even an integer, like a bit. Right. A bit. Um, yeah. Uh, and then if the wheel does fall off, I'm sure there's plenty of other uh, uh, stuff you can pick up too, but um, hopefully nobody gets hurt. But, uh, but I mean, ultimately you're right. You know, like, you don't, the, the problem with data is, is so much that it, there's value, but like, there's a certain amount of, like, we've gotten to the point where just because we can, we've done it right. Oh yeah, sure. Bring up that 4k. Like if I'm, if I'm a sales um, person for like one of those cloud providers, yeah, man, bring in all that 4k data you want. <laughs> like yum, yum, yum. Um, we'll take it all and we'll be happy to charge you for it too. Right. Um, but uh, I think as we get to the point where um, um, there might just be too much data, I think people, organizations are going to start thinking like, where can we where can we scale back kind of the storage because we don't really need it unless there's some kind of regulatory reason for it. Uh, now, one thing I want to I want to double click on because we can we can this is a fascinating conversation. We'd love to have you back on the show at some point. Sure. Um, uh, what's the deal with FPGA? Because um, you mentioned that, and 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 this was a huge deal. So a couple of things that are interesting is that. Um, I first heard about transformers at the uh, Microsoft has this internal data science conference, MLADS, and they first talked about transformers. I went into the the, the talk and after 10 minutes, my head went boom, right? I didn't quite follow it. Somebody later on in the day and like the, the reception area was kind enough to explain it, how it works. And one of the other things that came out of that conference was talking about the importance of FPGAs and what they're going to be like in the future. Now, I, again, I'm a data scientist. I really don't focus on hardware so much until I, when I need to buy a uh, new hardware, <laughs> like a new desktop or laptop. Uh, what 
what are FPGAs? And I, I remember hearing a lot about them, and then they kind of went dark for a while, and then now they're kind of coming back into vogue. Can you, can you talk to us about, one, what they are, and then, two, where you see they're going? Sure. So at an FPGA, or Field Programmable Gate Array, they've been around for forever. I mean, computer science engineers going back, electrical engineers going back to the, you know, to the 80s played with FPGA. They were very early FPGAs, but basically they're programmable hardware. That's really the way to think about it. You think about a CPU or an ACE or any chip, it's got, you know, it's laid down with its transistors and the flow of those transistors is fixed. You know, and the, the CPU can do multiple software flows, but it's it's actual, you know, the instruction flow is the instruction flow. What makes FPGAs interesting is that you can create new RTL, new layouts of flows, what they call netlist, of those instructions going across those transistors each time. You can go in hmm. and customize it. After so the manufacturing builds you a clean slate of a bunch of you know think about it, a bunch of rows, and then you program them to your specific need at a hardware style abstraction layer. So it gives you a much you know a faster capability because you're now really writing in hardware. It's a lot more complex of a coding. It's not like you know doing Python, but right. what you get is a very optimized piece of hardware for your specific use case. And what's nice about that is, you know, and this is you, you know, one of the great examples is in signals conditioning. You know, when you're doing like 5G research or testing signal, you know, uh, amplitudes and things like that, as you put in your algorithm into actually into hardware, you go out and test it. Yeah, it works sort of here. I need to tweak it. Well, instead of going and spinning a new piece of hardware, you just upload new code and you go right in. So it's a much faster time of development for doing those custom things. What people have found when we start looking at sort of AI use cases and machine learning and pattern matching is that FPGAs really lend themselves well to the to be able to create different kinds of architectural approaches to how you process that data, that data flow. Hmm. If you think about a GPU or a CPU or even an ASIC, it's a fixed data flow. It's good for the things it was designed for. Right. What FPGA allows you to do is to customize your flows based on what the data is or based on what your algorithm are. And so a lot of the FPGA work they were seeing in AI is people coding their AI algorithms or the machine learning algorithms right into hardware and then wow. deploying it. And so it allows you to be able to deploy your thing quicker and you get pretty good performance. It's not as good as say as a custom ASIC for your algorithm. And it's not as scalable really as like a, a, a software abstraction on running on a cloud set of CPUs. But for a lot of these training and inferencing use cases, one of the areas where it shines is in the whole area of neuromorphic processing. So a whole part of the AI machine learning space is, you know, so modeling after brain activity or how our sure. brains process. It's a whole field. FPGAs are actually well designed for those kind of algorithms that x86 and other CPU style architecture just aren't um, yet. And that's why FPGAs really shine in those environments because you can create these linear sort of permutation flows that you find in neuromorphic algorithms you just code those into the into the path for the FPGA. They're really good. At, you'll see FPGAs are very often used in cellular and RF communications that are really good at those sort of channel uh, channelizer and and signal optimization and be able to do those kind of algorithms that you do on RF and comms. Again, really good for those kind of workflows. And so why we see yeah. the resurgence of FPGAs, although they've never gone away, you find them everywhere. Open up your your big screen flat screen TV, you'll find a couple of FPGAs in there. Where, they, where they're shining is because it allows you to do some rapid prototyping on AI. And because we're seeing now FPGAs come to the cloud. So you go to, you know, Azure has a, an FPGA cloud. You yeah. can now deploy those algorithms at cloud scale, or you can deploy an FPGA into your edge sensor 
and be able to do that real time sort of, let's go try this inferencing model. Oh, we're gonna change the inferencing model. Let's go do that one. And where this becomes yeah. really interesting in those low slop environments is the modern FPGA is reprogrammable you know, in milliseconds, which means you can go from one program to another by just pushing a, a firmware, if you will, update. And now you go from you know a 5G communications system to a, uh, a LTE or to a 6G without actually going and swapping out the hardware. That That's makes wild. sense. That's wild. Yeah, it's exciting times. So, so with that, the updatable part of it, um, what's how do you secure that? Because I can easily see that being like, particularly you work in the in in, in the federal space, right? Like security is top of mind in that work. It should should be in top of mind everywhere. But <laughs> in, yeah. in the near term, uh, it's top of mind at least in in in, in the federal space. It's like. FPGA sounds like awesome, but it also sounds like that just seems dangerous in a lot of ways. Just you can reprogram it in milliseconds. Like there's got to be some kind of security story there. Oh, absolutely. And FPGAs have actually in many cases led as far as the kind of security mechanisms built into the hardware for that very reason. Um, mm. So you have, uh, I mean, at, at its core, at the, at the core level, it's the same kind of approach you do for uh, verifying your firmware on your system. It's signed by hardware. So that you can, you know, you basically you're verifying your load. And if you're going to do an update, you're going to verify a signature against a hardware rooted key so that you make sure that your only legitimate folks can do the update and that it's only be able to be done by someone who's got the permission from a, a, a cryptographic perspective. What we find in the current FPGAs that are out in the market um, is that they've built in, you know, a whole suite of security capabilities, things like Puff, provably uh, unclonable functions, which is basically a hardware root key that is really secure as that hardware root of trust. Signing in cryptography functions, anti-tamper functions to make sure someone can't go pop open the lid or put in a, a jumper and try to, try to change the code. So those kind of mechanisms have been in place for a long time because FPGAs have been used in such critical places. Um, we find them in radar stations, we find them in comm systems. And so they've been building security in for a very long time. And it's part of the workflow that when you build your code, you're gonna take advantage of these uh, implicit, let's call them IP blocks that do security for your RTL, for your code that you're putting in place. The other important thing is that they're all, you know, the way that the code works is once you lay it out, once you translate your software into that layout, the layout is, you know, you can't just sort of go and reverse engineer back. And so it's it's really uh, a very powerful uh, mechanism as opposed to say firmware when you're, it's software. You know, if you think about the BIOS update, it's software that you're loading just deeper in your platform. Right. Um, and if anyone wants to go inspect, you'll find there's a lot of software in the hardware that you don't realize is actually software. The same kind of security mechanism we did there. You verify it against a hardware of trust. You make sure it's signed before you, before you run it. And then you apply cryptography to make sure that it can't be changed or in its integrity protected. You find those same capabilities built into the hardware of an FPGA and the software development tools, the Verilog, the Cordis and so forth, have the mechanisms to take advantage so again, programmers don't have to be security gurus. They basically say, oh, I'm going to push this and it's auto going to take advantage of those features. It's that, good because programmers historically are very bad security people. I say that it says that's programmer. Yep. That's right. It's its own specialty. And right. um, yeah, you, you can't be good at everything these days. There's too much. There is. So I'm, I'm going to echo what uh, Frank said earlier, Steve. We got to have you back. I really appreciate you being here. We could talk and geek out on hardware stuff forever. Um, but uh, we want to pivot and go to our questions. And 
uh, if that's okay. We want to start sure. with, unless Frank, unless you had anything else you wanted to do before questions. All right, no, let me rephrase I'm, I'm that. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, like this is this is fascinating. In the virtual green room, you, you talked about some things that are going on and, and kind of, you know, operationally and like, and like, wow, like, yeah. you know, we didn't, we, we didn't even get there. I mean, I think the important yeah. thing, yeah. the important thing I took from this conversation is that one, you know, GPUs, I, they are important, but they're not the whole story. Um, and two, um, you know, at the end of the day, chat GPT, any, any of these magical looking AI models, right? Uh, magical seeming, right? They're all math, right? Yep. And be, beneath the math, are electrons bouncing around inside these microscopic chips, right? And there's all sorts of things you could do to tweak and improve that. Even even if it's like a billionth of a second, right? A billionth of a second times a billion adds up. It does. You know? And 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 that adds up in terms of you know whether you're you're driving a car or you know you're flying a plane or you know you're 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 a, you're a company like AWS or, or Microsoft where you know. Hey, if I save one, you know, compute second per transaction, I do trillions of those a day. I and mean, that's real money. Exactly. Um, and that's that's the thing that blew my mind. But yeah, let's let's switch because I could we could geek out for hours because this true. is very true. This is exactly. um yeah. Um it's so amazing. Yeah, it really you. is. Um so how did you find your way into not so much data, but IT? Like how did you find your way into data? Did IT find did you did you find AT, IT or did IT find you or hardware specifically? So Bring, it's a really good question. And um, going back to the very beginning, I actually I started out in the uh, uh biology uh, bio research side of the camp, going oh, all the wow. way back. I was gonna be wow. a research biologist and Probably, you know, still be there today, but except for a couple of key uh, life events uh, early in the uh, in the early 90s. Um, I, I was a hacker as a kid. I loved seeing how things fell apart, you know, and how to code and break code and things like that. But, you know, in the in the late 80s, there really wasn't a career, uh, you know, other than a COBOL programmer, which wasn't an exciting career at the time. So I went the bio route, which was my other love. And right after I graduated and was going to start med school, uh, I had a year off. And uh, someone had some money, wanted to do a startup-y thing, and they knew I was a hacker and say, hey, why don't you help me get this thing running? And, we'll, we'll, I'm, and I'm thinking, well, med school's expensive. This would be a good way to help pay for it. Sure. And uh, so I started my first company in 95, and after three months, just fell in love with everything that was going on. It was the exciting time to be in the internet. Got to apply some of my security you know, hacker background in an interesting way and had some really good mentors, uh, people like Bruce Schneier, uh, you know, the writer of applied cryptography sort of took Wait, me under his wing. Wait, Bruce Schneier? Like the Bruce the... Schneier was one of my wow. mentors and uh, took me under his wing. And I like to say, I sucked his brain dry as best as I could. Um, but really, it just, you know, sort of got the opportunity to get on the ground floor um, right before Netscape went public. So really early days um, on a startup in the email encryption space. And then one thing led to another. And I just felt I, I, this was what I was going to do. And for the next, you know, sort of several years, I did multiple security startups um, throughout the 90s and in 2000s. And then in 2005, got acquired by Intel. And oh, wow. I like to joke, I'm still trying to figure out, you know, how I ended up here for 18 years. Um, but I think what Intel's provided me and provides a lot of our folks is the ability to sort of innovate in an environment where, A, you've got, you know, a big company behind you, you know, helping sure. you do that. But I, I, one of the best reasons why I think Intel has been fun for me my most successful startup, we had 500 of Fortune 1000 companies using our product. 
the first project I worked on in Intel went to 40 million PCs. So the impact is just, you know, it's unbelievable. Um, now from the data side, you know, again, at the end of the day, like you mentioned earlier, underneath the data, underneath the machine learning, underneath the AI, and even before we were talking about AI was machine learning and advanced pattern matching, it's, there's electrons moving around. It's, it's running on hardware. And so a lot of what my job has been before I came to the federal team was looking for ways to innovate or take advantage of new use cases in software to take advantage of hardware in interesting ways. And so what mm -hmm. we call that pathfinding. So you think about our labs or thinking about the next generation hardware five to 10 years out. I ran a team, the security pathfinding team that was looking at the two to five year horizon. I knew this was the hardware platform that was gonna be there next year. What would be some interesting things I could do with it to either advance security or increase security? That was my area of domain. And so things like, you know, anti-malware technologies, cloud security before they knew how to spell cloud. We called it virtualization security first and things like that. Web security, that was the fluffy stuff that was Steve's world while the hardware engineers are figuring out, you know, low level cryptography and, and hardware roots of trust. And we sort of worked in tandem to innovate. Um, and so as, as things like data science started to take off, it was like, this is a key area, both from a security and perspective, how do I secure that data? How do I put secure the algorithms? How do I use that? I mean, one of the really cool things is being able to use machine learning and AI and apply it to the cyber problem. Right. And when you start doing things like that, you immediately run to, well, we've got too much data flowing in. I mean, the, the, the classic example is, you know, streaming analytics on network at network speed. Well, how do you do deep packet inspection at you know gigabit or higher speeds without losing data. I mean, that's right. a big problem. That's where hardware can help save you that you can't you just can't do in software. Um, mm. And then when I transitioned to the federal team uh, and took over and drove our federal technology practice, it really opened the door to all the different use cases. And one of the things I like about the federal government is that it's a mi macrocosm of all verticals. You wanna talk finance, mm. you've got IRS and CMS, some of the largest, you know, you know uh, processing of, of financial data. You wanna talk healthcare, the VA is the largest provider of healthcare, the largest insurer in the world. You wanna talk logistics, DOD logistics is huge. So yeah. every you sort of look at it, every kind of use case you'll find in government. So it's really a good way of looking at all the different verticals and they all have unique or interesting data problems. There's some commonality. And one of the things I really like about the federal government is that you get that commonality across the divisions. They're all having troubles doing data ingestion. That is just fundamental. And it doesn't matter if you're the federal government or Citibank or a startup in Silicon Valley, data ingestion is hard. And yeah. doing it at scale and being able to then do something once you've got the data. And I, I like to use the analogy of an iceberg. So AI, chat GPT, all the, those are the tip of the iceberg. That's the cool, sexy stuff you can do. The hard work, the data curation, data wrangling is all the work that has to be done before you ever get there. And that's data yeah. ingestion, it's labeling, it's curation, it's data set management, it's all that stuff. And then layer in things like removing bias or dealing with bias and securing and integrity, protecting your data. Like all those things have to happen before yeah. you ever you know, start f having the fun math that happens towards the end of that mm -hmm. curve. Um, that's where you find that coming out. Everyone is challenged with those things. And I think that's where the excitement is today. No, we you can definitely hear that. it in your voice. Sorry, Andy. Yeah, definitely. No, it's okay. We we refer to that uh, as a kind of a joke that comes. It's been going on for seven years now. We say first you get the data, and, and you know, and that's kind of that's ninety percent of the work. We know that it's and your iceberg analogy fits that. 
Uh, Frank, we need a shirt that has a picture first of an iceberg. And it says, first, you get the data under the yeah, water there. I like that. I'm definitely <laughs> going to do that. We we, uh, we launched a magazine actually yesterday as we record this. And uh, the, the, the cartoon segment is called, first, you get the data. And it kind of like cringy things that you'll hear like about data. <laughs> and one of them was like, yeah, you know, first, we get the data. Like, oh, or my favorite was, uh, oh, our like I said, um, uh, you had to prep and clean the data. And yeah. and they were like, oh no no, our data is already in the normalized database. We don't need to clean it or prep it. It's already ready. <laughs> yeah. Like oh boy. Um. <laughs> what, what you need? You know what you need? You need a picture of someone you know, throwing data into a washing machine. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's that's a good shirt. We could do um, that. Yeah. Um, no, that's cool. And, and and I think you bring up something that I think if if, if folks um, folks you know we don't know our exact age demographic. We have a rough idea. Yeah. But like, if there's anyone like under, the, let's say under the age of thirty, right? You, you know, in the in the car with the with with the the parents or they're listening, it's hard to imagine a time because we're about the same age. I think you're a little older. Like, um, that if this was not seen as a good career path, like coding was not the whole learn to code movement oh, gotcha. is, is 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 a modern phenomenon. Like, yep. I had to convince. I started my college career to be a chemical engineer. Uh, because uh, my parents, I had to convince my parents that software engineering was a viable career path. And my mom, God rest her souls, was like, I don't want my baby to be one of those weird people in the basement. <laughs> right. And, and you know, and then my dad, God rest his soul, was like, you know, because uh, when they came to visit me, I, I had a, a Sunday printout of the New York Times, which, of course, had like the um, the job section, which, you know, was like at one point like a book. Right. And like, look at all these jobs for computer programming. Like this is, this is the thing. And, and my dad looked through it and he saw the starting salaries and it was like seven or eight pages of near six figure salaries in the early nineties, which was mm -hmm. a lot of money back then. Right. Yeah. I... Like looking through like on wall street stuff and like, he's like, I'm sold. And it was like, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and my mom yeah. was like, no, you that know, is so funny. That, that is literally like my experience as well. When I told my parents yeah. that I was going to, you know, not go to the, the research biology route and do the MD PhD, I was going to go into the security thing. They wanted to do an intervention. They thought something was wrong. Oh, and yeah. it, uh, about two years, about 90, in 96, after I'd done the start for about a year and a half, um, there was an article in the New York Times, uh, Paul Kotcher had done the timing attacks against RSA and it was front page news. And when you read down the first blurb, it says 22-year-old bio student from Stanford cracks RSA encryption. So I cut that out and faxed nice. it to my parents because they haven't emailed yet and <laughs> said, look, another bio student doing security. It can happen. <laughs> right, right. That's funny. That's funny. You know, the, one of the best web developers I ever worked with, his degree was in biology uh, as well. And I think there's something to be said about understanding natural systems. And I think there's some pattern matching gifts that go along with that. I, I know my friend was that way as well. And Frank, when your mom said she didn't want you to be one of those weirdos in the basement, my that flew through my head, but I, I maintained discipline. Was too late. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we and I could say the same for me as well. Yeah. Too too late. Well, we're, well, we're in, in her defense, my mom stayed with us in, in 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 a house that my wife also works in technology too. So yeah. You know, she she had an entire suite in 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 our basement of our house, which was, you know, not 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 a, a you know, windows walk out, you know, yard, everything. So right. uh, it worked out well. 
it did. It did. You know, and and well, you know, sometimes you, your parents, you know, like my my mother encouraged it without realizing, and she allowed me to buy the Hayes modem and right. connect it to our right. phone. And I did get disciplined when I had that thousand dollar phone bill for dialing into BBSs overnight. But um, oh. they, they should have seen it coming. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I, I uh, my mom freaked out when I wanted a modem. She's like, No, absolutely not. <laughs> and my dad was like, yeah, you probably should stay out of trouble. It's easier to stay out of trouble than. <laughs> I, th I think I was lucky that my parents didn't know what a modem was. So I was. No one could ever get me. <laughs> right. Well, let's, um, uh, this is awesome, but I want to jump to question two. Sure. And ask, what's your favorite part of your current gig? Ooh, favorite part of my good gig. I think, honestly, I, I thrive on being challenged, on, on on trying to solve big, hairy problems. Uh, I think that's what awesome. has always excited me, is presenting you with something that isn't being done well today and trying to figure out how to do it. And I think one of the things that I love about my job is meeting with, with government customers who have big, hairy problems and yeah. looking at yeah. a variety of technologies. And I think what makes my role somewhat unique at Intel, so we have like a CTO for memory and a CTO for you know various architectures, is my role is pan Intel. So hmm. I can look across FPGAs, server parts, networking, and sort of see that collective of where the bits can come together to solve big, hairy problems. And that's really, I, I find, keeps me very uh, excited is that every day I could be talking about an IoT problem today with an edge sensor, and they're talking about, you know, petabytes of data being processed in the cloud tomorrow. Nice. It's looking across the technology domains. And Again, coming from a background of cybersecurity, which again, looking at various different domains from a security perspective, but then adding to that, you know, AI, high performance computing, it's it's a technology, you know, playground. Right. right. And the federal oh. government, like when I when I when I first joined Microsoft, I I I was in I got in, was in the public sector part of doing basically technology developer evangelism for the federal mm -hmm. government. And a lot of my 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 commercial sector colleagues were like, wow, it must be really boring there. And I'd be like, you know, <laughs> you think we that. see things, we see things that you don't see. Like yeah. it's just, and it, and and what it is is like there's interesting work going on, but the folks doing interesting work for many reasons do not want a lot of attention. Exactly. Indeed. So you see some things that like, wow, you know, <laughs> gee, right. I hadn't really thought of that, you know, type moments. Well, d decades ago, I spent a, a, just a little bit of time in a really odd-shaped building up that way, Frank. <laughs> um, just just a touch of time, so I can have five I can go. It did. I, so I can go yes and amen. Uh, <laughs> everything you you both have shared about. Um, so now we have three complete the sentences. Uh, when I'm not working, I enjoy blank. I spending time with my kids. I have two small children, and they keep me young and uh, full of fun. And uh, and and keep me well trying trying to stay in shape to keep up with them. <laughs> Very cool. Our uh, our next both Frank and I have uh, have children as well. Frank's has Frank has the younger kids. I'm probably the old guy in this conversation now that <laughs> I think about it. But uh, number two, complete this uh, sentence is I think the coolest thing in technology today is blank. Ooh, one thing that is a tough question. Um, I, I would have to say sort of the two things that I that I think are really cool. I mean, number one, yeah. again, not the chat GPT, but what you what the future will do with that capability exactly. is one area. And then That's again, because cool. I'm a security geek at heart, the post quantum crypto is going to be fun. Uh, figuring out the next generation of algorithms and how how robust they'll be once quantum computing comes online, I think that's an exciting area of math. 
uh, that mm. you know it's going to spurn a lot of a math a lot of mathematic academia is going to is excited because it's a renewed interest in that space. Sure. And the algorithms are really interesting. It's not it's you know the lattice space structures are a fun area of math to look at. Nice, interesting. Uh, the third and final um, complete the sentence. I look forward to the day when I can use technology to blank. Ooh, so I'm going to give you two answers. Um, I look forward to the day when I can draw something on a whiteboard and it turns into code. That's one oh. thing I'm looking forward to. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, I can totally. And that's not that far off. It's not. I think a little bit of sort of the you know image to text, image to code. I think we're all we're getting it building blocks. You have to be able to read my horrible handwriting. That's going to take an AI in its own right. But <laughs> I would love a day when I can start draw my design like I like to do. And I'm a whiteboard kind of guy, and then have it get create a prototype. I think that's one thing I'm looking forward to. Um, and then I think the the other thing is I, I'm looking forward to the day when augmented reality becomes reality, where it's not just a cool toy, but where we actually see yeah. it integrated um, into our daily lives. And I'm, I'm not talking the glasses and all that. I'm talking about having the digital world and our physical world actually start to make sense as a, yeah. instead of it being a throwaway toy. And I think we're seeing pockets of it, but I think that the, the future is gonna hold a lot more of that immersive experience that we only see in movies today. I think those are the two things from a technology perspective, I'm looking forward to. Although I have to say, if I can get that code, the code from the whiteboard is going to make me a lot more efficient. <laughs> no, that's true. And yeah. like, it's funny because <laughs> things that once seemed impossible, you know, are now possible and even sure. mundane. Like, so I remember when I was a kid, there was a story, there was like a story we read about a kid who wrote a, built a homework machine, right? And this mm -hmm. was like first or second grade. And a bunch of us kids were like, yeah, like, how do we do this? We got to make one of those. And then now you look at ChatGPT, you know, obviously we, we abandoned the effort because, you know, it just wasn't possible at the time. But but you look at how kids are using ChatGPT today, it's like at, that machine exists. Yep. yep. Not in the way or the shape or form we could have imagined, but it's it's definitely here. So yep. so for, to have that whiteboard to code thing, totally, yeah. it's totally within within vision, within sight, whether we're, when it'll be within reach. Only yeah. time will tell, probably a few if, weeks. If there are VCs out there <laughs> listening, this is an idea to invest in. Well, yeah, for sure, for sure. I would love to see, especially for you, Steve, I'd love to see um, whiteboard to FPGA uh, code. That'd be even better. That would, you know, we're just combining ideas. And that's, there you go. That's I know that would make some of my engineers happy. <laughs> there you go. Really, really cool stuff. So we ask uh, all of our guests to share something different about yourself. Um, but we caution everyone uh, to be fair that remember we're trying to keep our clean rating at iTunes. So uh, please keep that in mind. So something different about me. Um, well, I can. I, I guess one thing you know, you've, we've already talked about the fact that I have a bio background. But the other thing I, I like to do uh, is uh, I play tournament poker, and so oh, I'm an uh, avid okay. poker player. When when not in COVID lockdowns and things like that. Right. Uh, I played in the World Series back in 2013. And, really? Uh, I am. A, I, I love that. That's something I like to do as a past. It's a good. It's a different use of my skills of sort of sure. social engineering, if you will. Um, right. And I like the tournament play because it's sort of a long game. Right. Well, I have I have a stack of money, and I'd love to to learn more about. <laughs> oh, and that's a joke. <laughs> all you need is you're money. always welcome to my table <laughs> <laughs> i'm lying about the money 
<laughs> but no, my my wife is actually a pretty good poker player. And when she was pregnant with our second, um, she would carry she she's short and she would carry a stool with her because she would have to set up and her feet didn't reach the floor. And I think I gave her like a hundred dollars in seed money and said, you know, go knock yourself out. And she came back like she was spending money. I think she turned that into something like two grand uh, before she had to quit and go have Emma. So <laughs> wow. y'all should play. Awesome. Y'all, I would love to see y'all because she would. She's. I, I don't think she's your level by any stretch, but she did okay. At well, the we should have a data-driven, data-driven poker tournament. We should. There we that. go. Oh, oh, that's an fun. idea, Frank. The other we time should. we had an idea of the uh, somebody on the live stream said we should do like an ATV. Uh, uh, race or something because we always go off track like that's kind of nah. like the joke um <laughs> very true but uh no that's cool um audible is a sponsor of data driven can you recommend uh, a good book uh ideally audiobook if you do audiobooks if not sure absolutely i just actually i just finished one that i think would be perfect uh, uh sort of summation of this so chip wars uh okay. is an excellent book uh, it, it's hot you know like you think it, it's it's talking about today but it gives you the history of how we got here um, and even I, you know, one of the things I, I thought was really interesting is some of the decisions that were made early on from the policy, the, go the government policies that we've seen and how it affects where we are today. Yeah. Fascinating reading. So yes, absolutely. Chip Wars. Uh, it's available on Audible because I literally just finished uh, reading, uh, listening to it oh, on cool. Audible. So that's, that's, that would definitely be a book I would recommend. Cool. So I, um, I watched a show called Halt and Catch Fire a few years ago when it was at, it was similar it was in that vein you know of when things were developing and trying basically the laptop yeah. um, development story and it, of course it was fiction but there were some i i know enough about it to know there were some true parallels in there so i this is a this would be very appealing to me i'm going to get it hadn't heard of it thank you for recommending and our listeners can go to the datadrivenbook.com i didn't test it today frank some days it's moody, and uh, but if you go there, it should redirect you to Audible. And if you decide, you get a free book on us. And if you decide later to sign up, then it it buys Frank a cup of coffee. And um, so you know when you do that, we get a little bit out of it. It's a great way to support the show, and we really appreciate it. Awesome. And where can people find out more about you and what your uh, what the what the federal team at Intel is doing? So uh, find out more about me, go to my LinkedIn page. That's S-O-R-R-I-N uh, on LinkedIn. And okay. then uh, to find out more of what Intel's doing in public sector, just go to intel.com slash public sector, and it will redirect you to our government solutions page. Uh, it covers everything from AI, data science, to cybersecurity, to edge, um, with lots of white papers, use cases, um, podcasts with folks like myself and others that are uh, recording content on how Intel is helping our ecosystem. So awesome. definitely come check us out. Awesome. And with that, I'll let Bailey finish the show. Now that was some show. Is it me or are the shows getting better? It could be my bias that leads me to say that, but I figured I would ask to get more input. After all, what's an AI without good input and a feedback loop? Speaking of feedback, have you checked out Data Driven Magazine yet? We are looking for writers for the autumn 2023 issue.